Before we begin our Torah study this morning, let's pray together. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who sanctifies us with his commands and commands us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. Amen. I want to continue in the theme that we've been exploring the last couple of weeks. We've looked at Romans 11, which gives us some instruction on how to have a right understanding and how to have a right attitude uh, for Gentiles who are believers and disciples of Yeshua, how to have a right understanding and a right attitude about Jews. And we looked at Acts chapter 15, which shows how the Jews had to get a right understanding and a right attitude towards Gentiles. So we, we've looked at the challenges and we've looked also at, at the different perspectives that people have had about the law of God. And I want to make a distinction this morning between law and Torah for a reason. Law is one way of translating Torah or Torah, but it's not the only way. And the, the foundational understanding of the word Torah is that it means instruction from God. Now, once you understand that, you understand that it would be a ridiculous proposition that Torah has been fulfilled, meaning terminated. And I'll tell you why. Because if instruction from God has been terminated, we're lost. And we have no foundation and we have no direction. It can't, fulfillment does not mean termination. It means brought into fullness. Yeshua said, I did not come to destroy the Torah. And many commentators have rightly understood what that means. Destroy means to wrongly interpret. So Yeshua has the best interpretation of Torah. If you want to be a disciple of Yeshua, it means that you accept his interpretation. You accept his teaching. You accept his practice as the best example. Now that can be challenging. How do you transfer practice 2,000 years ago during the time of the temple to practice today? How do you translate understanding from that time period to understanding now? And that's part of the challenge of being a, a modern day disciple. And we all have to do it. Now you would think after 2000 years of trying to get these issues right, that it should be all settled. There shouldn't be any more to talk about. There shouldn't be any controversies. But let me tell you that is not the case. 2000 years later, people are still working on it. They're still working on right attitudes and right understandings. And so that's part of our life. We have to work on these things. We have to work our way through them. And I want to give you some guidance as you try to do that. I also mentioned that there are two extremes that I believe we want to avoid. And I use the word law to describe them but I want to elaborate on them. One of, one of the extremes says the law is everything. And I think it's an extreme, and I'll, and I'll tell you why, because God himself is everything. God is number one. The greatest commandment of all is to love the Lord, 
your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. That's number one. And I said the other extreme is to say the law is nothing. So those are two extremes, and I believe that in between those is the area where we have to work out and, and wrestle with things. We have to understand what are the commands of Yeshua. For instance, as we read this morning from John 14, where he says, the one who obeys my commands loves me. So we have to understand what are his commands. He does have commands. He said, I give you a new commandment, love one another as I have loved you. By this all men will know that you are my disciples. He said, that's a commandment. Do you agree? It's a commandment. Yeah, it's a commandment. It's not a suggestion. God did not come down to say, I have a suggestion. You may take it that way, but Yeshua didn't speak it that way. It's a command. A command means it's authoritative. And it, that obedience will bring blessing to us. Now, there are prior commands. Yeshua said that there were two great commands. Do you remember what they are? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbors yourself. He said, all of the Torah and all the prophets hang upon these. And so when asked the question about commands, he, he, he wasn't wishy-washy. He didn't say, oh, these things are just over and done with. But we do have to understand something. Even though the Torah of God stands, there are changes in the covenant that God made with Israel. And we can look at that from two, two particular points of view in order to see it clearly, but then we have to work out the details. Number one, we can look at it from Jeremiah 31, where God speaks to the prophet, the Jewish prophet, Jeremiah, and says that I will make a new covenant with you that is not like the covenant I made at Sinai. Now those words are perfectly clear, not like. So you know what that means? There are going to be differences between the Sinai covenant and the new covenant. Now the new covenant in Hebrew can also be translated renewed covenant. And so what that tells us is, in the renewal of the covenant, there are going to be some changes. Whether you agree on what those changes are, the text is absolutely explicit, there will be changes. And then it calls out some of the changes. An example, I will write the Torah on your hearts and on your minds. So Torah was written prior to that on tablets of stone and then committed onto scrolls as well. And God says he's gonna write Torah on your hearts and minds. So there is a relocation of the commands of God. And there's some change in that respect. And things that work from the inside out work differently than those that work from the outside externally. So that's a change. There's another change that Jeremiah identifies. And that is no one will say, know the Lord thy God, because everyone from the least to the greatest will know the Lord. So in the new covenant, we have to see this, that there is a knowing of God and not just a knowing of God's laws. Do you see there's a difference between that? You can know all the laws of a land, but if, if you know the king or the president, it's a little different. Every one of you has access to all the laws of the state of Florida. But if you want to talk to the governor, good luck. It's not the same thing. And if you want to go to dinner with him, you've got to know him 
in a very different way. You could know all the laws of our land and that would be one way of knowing, but to know the president is a different way of knowing. You can know all the laws that are written in the Bible, but to know the one who gives us the laws is a different thing. And what Jeremiah 31 conveys is that there will be a knowing of the Lord in the new covenant. And when this word know is used, it's not the knowing informationally, it's the knowing of an intimacy and relationship. This word is often used to describe the intimate relationship between a husband and wife. So you could translate it, and it would be accurate, as you will have an intimate, personal relationship with God. This is foundational about the new covenant. So that is, those are examples of changes in the new covenant from the Sinai covenant. And it's important for us to say this so that we can establish some boundary markers for ourselves and some goals for ourselves. Now there's a question, by what means is the Torah of God written on our hearts and our minds? To understand that, we have to understand the work of the Holy Spirit. To understand the work of the Holy Spirit, we have to understand the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Yeshua. Because, if I can say this in, in short measure, it is not only true that Yeshua died as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. That is true. But if you think that's all he did, then you miss some of the other things. He also rose from the dead. That's important because it's a demonstration of resurrection life. It's also important because it shows the power of God over death and the power of God over sin. But it doesn't stop there. Yeshua returned and visited his disciples. And then he ascended to heaven over their protests. They wanted him to stay. He said, I have to go. Their attitude was, we're gonna be alone. He said, no, you're not. I have to go so that I can send the Holy Spirit to you. And this giving of the Holy Spirit, this outpouring of the Holy Spirit is prophesied in Joel, begins at the celebration of Shavuot after the ascension of Yeshua. The Holy Spirit's poured out on Jews from all the nations, all the geographic areas where they've gathered from for this, uh, for this regalim, this pilgrimage festival. And they come together and the Holy Spirit is poured out first on the Messianic Jews who are already disciples and on, then on the new thousands of Jewish people who accept Yeshua and who repent of their sins and seek forgiveness and put their trust in him. That is a marvelous thing and you can't understand the full measure of the new covenant if you don't see all those details. You'll just get little pieces of it. And so God is wanting to give us the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is the one who will fill us up and who will be the agent of God who writes Torah on our hearts and our minds. You and I still have to give them something to work with. We have to read Torah. We have to read Tanakh. We have to read the writings of Habrita Harashah, the New Covenant. We have a responsibility to know the Word. 
We have to, to read it and to eat it. It's delicious. It's nutritious. It will make you healthy. And it does not require FDA approval. It's already demonstrated to be good for you and good for your soul. And not only will it make you healthy in this life, it will give you eternal life. It will reveal to you how to, how to know Yeshua. The Tanakh will reveal to you. According to the apostles, the Tanakh can be used to guide you into the knowledge of Messiah Yeshua. Now, there's another aspect of the new covenant that's worth taking note of. The new covenant is also associated with the end of the temple system. And we are living now in a period of renewal, but we have to know what it is that God is wanting to renew. He's not trying to renew the temple system with the blood sacrifices of the temple system. Because Yeshua became the perfect sacrifice, the atoning sacrifice, not just for one, but for all. And not just once, but for all times. And he has provided a blood sacrifice by which atonement is made for the sins of all mankind, all those who put their trust in him. And the end of the temple system means some things have changed. We have to get that. I say this because it's not obvious to some folks, but it should be obvious that when we say we want to obey Torah, we don't mean we want to go back to the temple system. And so we have to accept a general teaching of the Jewish world about Messiah, that when Messiah comes, Torah will be changed. That may challenge you, but Messiah has authority to bring about some changes. Yeshua made some changes. Now, did he throw out Torah? No. Did he throw out Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth? How many of you think, well, that's done way with now, because Yeshua rose from the dead? So it's not that everything is thrown out. And that's why I say if you, if you think everything, everything associating with the laws of God and the commands of God and the instruction of Tanakh is gone, then you, don't, you haven't thought through what you're throwing out because it is in Tanakh, according to the apostles, that revelation of Messiah actually is given. It's in the Torah, it's in Nevi'im, the prophets of Israel, that the first word is given about the new covenant. And so we, we have to be careful not to go into the extreme of saying it's all done away with. That's important. And the other thing that would, would be extreme, as I've said, is to say all of it is now formally binding upon us because if you accept that as your premise, then you're saying we must do blood sacrifices with animals, as an example. And you, you have to understand that to be a believer in Yeshua is to say that he accomplished everything necessary 
for atonement through blood sacrifice. And for that reason, there is no longer a need for blood sacrifice. That's what it means to, to be messianic and to trust in Yeshua. And if you say, well, I don't believe that, I believe that we must have animal sacrifices, that moves you outside of the messianic understanding. That should be clear to you. If it's not clear, I wanna make it clear. I feel good about talking about these things, I hope you do. And I'm trying to challenge you, I'm trying to get you to think through some things. Because all of us have understandings that came from other places. And all of us have understandings that make sense to us and that appeal to us and that we can prove, but there's a risk. I wanna give an example of the risk. Yeshua said he would die. His disciples didn't like that idea. They rejected the idea that Messiah must suffer. That went against their theology. It went against what they read in the scriptures. It went against their expectations. It went against their desires and Yeshua insisted it was true. And they said, on this matter, you're wrong. And it was not until after he died and after he rose from the dead that they saw how wrong they were. Now that's a lesson for us. These people were with Yeshua. They, they were close to him for years and they still got this detail of theology wrong. Did they get everything wrong? No. But I wanna point out to you that people get things wrong, that's human nature. We're not perfect. Here, I can prove it to you. Look at the person next to you and just ask this question. Are they perfect? <laughs> Answer, they're not. Though my wife is perfectly wonderful, but. <laughs> Okay, look in the mirror if you can. And do you see a perfect person? No, you don't. You see, we don't trust in our perfection, we trust in God's perfection. And so that, with that understanding goes this, we're gonna make some mistakes. But the theological mistakes we make when we trust God and when we take the word of God seriously is that we have blind spots and we don't realize it. We think we see everything clearly and that we can prove it. And the fact that you can construct a proof from a selective reading of scriptures does not mean that you're right. Because all of the disciples had the ability to construct a proof that Messiah would not suffer. Do you get that? We can also understand something that goes along with this. That during times of renewal, people are discovering things that need to be renewed, but they're not yet mature and firm in their understandings. I'll give an example of this. It's from Second uh, Chronicles chapter 30. I think it's a great example. During the time of Hezekiah, there's a renewal of the covenant in a sense. It's not the new covenant, but 
It's, it's the people returning to the covenant, returning to Torah, reading Torah, and in the reading of the scriptures, they begin to say, I want to do what I see in the scriptures. That kind of simplicity of faith that's awakened to what, what life looks like when we follow God. And so in 2 Chronicles 30, the people of Israel and Judah, Ephraim, Manasseh, all of them together decide to keep Pesach together. Now here's the funny thing. They're not ready to keep Passover when it should be kept. So instead of the first month, they keep it in the second month. And you know what, that's so typical of times of renewal. Oh, let's do it. Oh, we can't do it right. Let's do it anyway. We'll do it late. And the scripture holds this up as a good example to us of a process. Now, do you think God was angry with the people because they were 30 days late? I don't think he was. I think he was delighted. Now, here's the funny thing. They celebrate Passover for the week, a month late, and it's so good, you know what they decide to do? Keep it another week. Now, you think that ticked God off? I don't. I think that was delightful to the Lord, that people were enjoying their time with celebrating the feast of God so much they decided to keep going. Renewal times are like that. When you discover something, you may do it late, you may not do it exactly right, and you may do it longer or in a more extreme fashion. That's why it's important to understand that times of renewal are times of working out and learning. Now, I believe we're in a time of renewal. And so we're having to learn things. And it's important not to be overly rigid in certain areas because if we do, rigor mortis will set in. Our rigor, the rigor associated with death will, will show up and we will rigidify and ossify, will become so rigid life won't be in us. And so it's important to understand. It's important to understand that that we need renewal. They needed renewal then, the renewal of the covenant, the reading of Torah and obedience to God. But ask this question, do we want to renew the temple system? My answer is no. Are we trying to return to an earlier form of temple-centered Judaism? No. Except for a small portion of the Jewish world. The rest of the Jewish world isn't trying to either. The rest of the Jewish world understands things have moved and there have been changes. It's not that everyone agrees on what caused the changes, but we as Messianic Jews, as Messianic believers should know what caused and what is associated with the changes from the temple system. And I can tell you the core reason for change it was the inauguration of the new covenant that's associated with the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Messiah Yeshua. That's the core reason. It's not just that, oh, we reached a certain time. 
And it's not that the temple was destroyed and thus. It is this has happened and it happened in advance of the destruction of the temple so that we had a sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice already in place. And we could anticipate what life would be like. During our times, the new covenant needs to be renewed. It's a renewal time for Jewish faith in Messiah. It's a time of renewal for the love of God's Torah and the Tanakh. It's a time for renewing the work of the Holy Spirit. It's a time to renew God's call for Jews and Gentiles to be together in unity in the body of Messiah. It's a time of renewal to the commitment to the physical regathering of the Jewish people, as God promised in so many ways and so many times. And it's a time of renewal for the commitment to the safety and the well-being of Jewish people all over the world. A time of renewal for that because we saw what happens when believers are not committed to the safety and protection of Jews. We saw the vulnerability during World War II in Europe. We've seen the dangers of that um, corrupt theology. Thank goodness for the believers of the confessing church in Germany. If you don't know the history of Germany, you should know that. Thank goodness for people like Karl Barth, who recognized that anti-Semitism and, and unconcern for the Jewish people were not compatible with biblical faith in Messiah. Thank goodness for the Barman Declaration. If these words don't mean anything to you, you need to get educated about the history of what happened and how believers did take a stand on behalf of the Jewish people. You need to learn about people like Edith Stein, a Jewish woman who became a Catholic nun and was given the, the um, option of escaping the roundup of the Jews because now she was Catholic. And she chose to go with her people to the Nazi camps. And she, as she was marching towards the camp, she said, I go with my people. And she understood something, that she was not a former Jew, she was still a Jew. You see, the theology that, that others had embraced during, during periods, the theology that Paul was speaking against, of arrogance and ignorance. We've had plenty of time, thousands of years now, to understand it, that arrogance and that ignorance needs to be fixed. But we have to be careful, what does it mean? Does it mean that the state of Israel can do no wrong? <laughs> Absolutely not. The state of Israel is a state. How many of you think the state of the United States of America can do no wrong? How many of you think the state of Russia can do no wrong? Hello? Uh, uh, the, how about Canada? Anybody here think Canada's perfect? Fiji, I mean, let's pick some. Isn't there a perfect state? Are you sure? How about the state of confusion? That's working pretty well in a lot of places. You see, there is no perfect state. And so we, we never should be confused and think that a state deserves our support because it's perfect. 
The state of Israel deserves our support because we saw what happened when the Jewish people have nowhere to go. And we saw that God had a plan to bring Jewish people back to him and back to the land. And he's working both parts and the enemy is against both parts. I want you to see that. But it doesn't mean that we worship the state. It doesn't mean that there's no criticism of the Jewish people. It simply means that we have a sober support and a foundation for why we stand with Israel during these times. Let's turn to Acts chapter 15 for just a moment. We're gonna review a little bit of this passage we, we looked at it last week, but we didn't take notice of a couple of things at the end of the chapter, Acts 15, verse 22. It says, then the apostles and elders with the whole church, well, it wasn't really the church, we went into that last week, the community of faith, decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. That's an important sentence because it demonstrates the unity that Paul and the apostles who were centered in Jerusalem had. They worked together, they worked in concert. They chose Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, men who were leaders among the believers. With them they sent the following letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. I want you to see the humility. Do you know that the apostles had more authority than the Gentile believers in Antioch who were not apostles? But the apostles approached them with humility because they said, uh, your brothers were coming not according to power, but according to brotherhood. Greetings, verse 24. We have heard that someone out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. And so we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord, Yeshua the Messiah. Therefore we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. In other words, they understood that if Paul and Barnabas carried the letter by themselves, some people would say, well, this is just what Paul and Barnabas say. And the letter can't be trusted because they represent a certain point of view. But Judas and Silas went together with Paul and Barnabas so that they could show the unity that existed about understanding and about practice. Verse 27, we're sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we're writing. Verse 28, it seemed good to, what does your Bible say? The Holy Spirit and to us. Who comes first? The Holy Spirit. You see, we were trying to discern what God was doing during times of renewal and during times of the outpouring of, of God's mercy in new ways. We have to recognize what God is doing. And if we fail to recognize what he's doing, we'll wrongly interpret things. 
They recognized the work of the Holy Spirit. They saw when Peter was speaking to the Gentiles in Caesarea at the house of Cornelius that the Holy Spirit was poured out on those Gentiles just as he had been poured out on Jews. They recognized that for what it was. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. How many of you went to college and had to fulfill requirements? Raise your hands. Okay. You know the difference between a requirement and a suggestion? You do, right? Then you can understand the simple meaning of these words. Beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. These are short phrases that are packed with meaning. What does it mean to abstain from blood? The earlier part of chapter 15 makes it perfectly clear. To abstain from blood means to abstain from eating blood. Now, those of you that don't like to eat blood, it's easy to go, ew, I would never do that. I was watching a, a TV show this past week with Anthony Bourdain. How many of you know who he is? He was visiting in France with one of the great modern French chefs, and they were preparing this, this wonderful feast together, and they collected blood in order to make a custard dish. Ooh, ick, they loved it. It was on television. You know there's some people who saw it who said, I gotta try that. But the apostle said, don't eat that stuff. The blood is given for atoning. There's life in the blood. It's always set apart. It's not meant for food. But that short phrase, abstain from blood, that's a requirement. That has to be explained. Abstain from the meat of strangled animals and from sexual immorality. Sexual immorality also has to be explained. It has to be connected back to Torah. What is sexual immorality? Do you know the Greeks and the Romans had their own definition of what sexual immorality was? And their sexual practices did not conform to Torah. How many of you knew that already? Okay, you know that. So when it says abstain from sexual immorality, it either means something or it means nothing. Because if people who get this are free to do whatever the culture around them says, there is no sexual immorality to abstain from. You're just doing what everybody does. But if it means something, the question is, what does it mean? Well, you can read in Corinthians that it's not always clear to people what these things should mean. Paul writes the Corinthians and says, I can't believe it. You've got a guy with his mother-in-law and they're sexually intimate together and, and that's okay with you guys. That's not okay. 
And, they, and Paul said, you've got to discipline these people in this situation. How is it not okay? Is it not okay by opinion? Is it not okay by suggestion? Is it not okay by preference? No, it's not okay because it violates a command of God that's still in effect, that's still binding. That's how Paul's interpreting it. If it were just a suggestion, you could say, you know, I just wish you thought differently. If it was just a matter of the Holy Spirit convicting them, he could have said, just pray. But it's beyond that. Because there are times when you just have to be confrontational and say, this crosses the line. And, and Paul said to the Corinthians, this crosses the line. Now on the other side, when that, those two people repented, you know what? He had to tell them, you gotta receive them back when they're really repentant. And they weren't ready to do that. They had to be instructed. So that just shows the human nature is sometimes to tolerate everything and at other times, not to show forgiveness and not to receive people back when, the, when it's ready. The last, the last verse ends with these words, you will do well to avoid these things. The appeal that the brothers, the apostles, are making is, this is good for you. They're not using a legalistic appeal, they're using the appeal of benefit. We're concerned for your well-being, this will go well with you. Now with that in mind, let's open up to Romans chapter 14. Now you might say, what does this have to do with the Torah portion this week? I'm gonna try to explain. If you took time to read the entire portion and the Haftorah this week, you would have come across a lot of laws. A lot of laws. And you may have said, oh my gosh, what are we to make of all of this? And I want to give you understandings that help you move in the right direction. Now having read Acts 15, we do have to ask a question. These four details that the apostles give to the Gentiles, do you think those are the only laws from Torah that are now applicable to Gentiles? I asked this question last week. Do you think that Gentile believers are able to strangle each other in love? <laughs> no. Are Gentile believers permitted to murder other people? Hello? Are you sure? How do you know? <laughs> do not murder. I know, but that's for the Jews. It's in Torah. <laughs> okay. You see, you already know you know. You may not be able to know what, explain why you know, but you know do not murder is still binding. Am I right? Can Gentiles gossip? No. <laughs> the apostles say, don't gossip, my goodness. Don't gossip. You see, we have to work through some of these things. We have to think about them long enough that we can make sense out of the, the challenges that come to us. And Paul in Romans 14, 
tries to give an, a, some instruction to the Romans about how to have the right attitude towards each other. Now this is very important because often people who are fastidious in law keeping have wrong attitudes. It's, it's not exclusive to that group. And the condition of being like that needs to be corrected. A couple of things came to my mind. I, I was thinking about a time Sandy and I were in Israel. We were in Jerusalem on Shabbat. And if you've ever been in Jerusalem on Shabbat, you know it's an amazing time. The, the city just quiets down. And it's not that things grind to a halt, it's that they slow to a peace that is really, really beautiful. And yet, even though the city seems to, in many ways, quiet and take rest for Shabbat, there are Jews, there are Israelis who exercise their legal right to move about on the city, to drive and so forth. And years ago, when Sandy and I were visiting, there was conflict between those Jews and certain ultra-Orthodox Jews who had a very strict understanding about Shabbat, which is it is against God to drive on Shabbat. Now I'm looking at you. I know every one of you got here except for one or two who may have ridden a bicycle. Everybody else drove here. And I know, even if you think you're Torah observant, these guys I'm talking about would have considered you not. So this is what was done during that time period. The, the ultra-Orthodox who were just irritated beyond imagination about insensitive, secular Israelis driving through their neighborhoods decided to make that not possible for those people. And they put up cables and chains across some roads. Not thinking what would happen if a motorcyclist came through. Yeah. And that's what happened. And so there were injuries, deaths, and I believe even a decapitation because of that. And the people who had done it at first thought it's the justice of God. Because that's what went with the mentality. Do you see that? And they didn't think, oh my gosh, we have violated the ethic of the sanctity of life in the name of another ethic. They missed something. And then I was thinking of a report I read from the Jewish newspapers, Israeli newspapers, last week, the new spiritual leader of the Shas party, Sephardic political party in Israel, made a statement that's absolutely consistent with his beliefs. He said anyone who wears a, a knitted kippah is from Amalek. Yeah, yeah. And he said that modern orthodoxy, different from his orthodoxy, 
is of Amalek and must be destroyed. Now he wasn't calling for the execution of all these people, but he was calling for their full defeat and he considered them of the stock of Haman. Do you get that? Because they had a different understanding than he had. And I thought, is that the spirit that we want to animate us? No, it's not. And then I, I, I thought of what happened in Nigeria just recently. If, if, if you know about this, I think almost 200 young women were abducted by Islamist extremists from a school and they were taken away and some of them were sold into uh, like slavery marriage to such people. And the extremists who took them believe that it's against God for women to be educated in schools. And thus they were doing God a service and the women a service by removing them. And they also believe that all Western education is ungodly and thus it was fully justified. And so what we can see is this, just when you think you know what the boundaries are of extremism, there's someone else who's willing to go even beyond that. And we have to understand for ourselves, what are the boundaries that we wanna live within? And in Romans chapter 14, Paul conveys something that's really important. Let's, let's look at it, and I believe this is where we'll close. One person esteems one day above another, another esteems every day. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. That's a certain attitude of tolerance. Do you see it? One person says, this is the day. So it could be the, the Messianic who says, it's gotta be Shabbat. It could be the, the, the Protestant who says, it's gotta be Sunday. It could be the person who says, it could be any day. And Paul's attitude is, let that person be fully convinced in his own mind. Let him work it out. He who observes, this is verse six, he who observes the day, observe it to the Lord. And he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. In other words, they're both trying to work out their own faith and practice. He who eats, eats to the Lord. For he gives God thanks, and he who does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat and gives God thanks. I had an interesting experience with something like this. Uh, a mutual friend arranged a lunch for me and an unconventional Orthodox rabbi, and we met at a restaurant, and the rabbi and I both ordered a salad with hummus and salmon on it. Uh, I, I'm not exactly sure why, but we both did. And so when it was served, I said, can we make a bracha? And the rabbi with me protested at first. And he said, but it's not kosher. And I said, but we're eating it. <laughs> he was eating and I was eating it. It wasn't unkosher, it just didn't meet all the strictures. Do you understand? and we were both eating it uh, with anticipation of pleasure. 
And he said, but you can only make a bracha over kosher food. And I said, I can thank God for everything that I eat. And he said, okay. <laughs> and so we give thanks to the Lord. It's like that here. Verse seven, for none of us lives to himself and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Messiah died and rose and lived again that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. But why? Here's the pivotal verse. Why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Messiah. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. Verse 12, very important verse. So then each of us shall give account of, what does the Bible say? Of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. That's an attitude, do you see? It's an attitude where you do what you know is right according to what you know so far, but you don't cross the line into judging the others. Now, does that mean anything and everything goes? No, it doesn't. And does it mean that nothing is ever judged at all? No, of course it doesn't mean that. It means something else, that we don't set ourselves up to be the condemner of other people. We don't set ourselves up as the perfect judge, prosecutor, and jury for other people, because that's unjust. And do you know how judging and contempt tends to work? We judge other people for their weaknesses using our strengths. I've done it, you've done it. That's unjust. We have to, if we wanna be just, we have to look at our weaknesses and compare them to other people's strengths. And we can't just be critical and contemptuous of other people who have different practices and different understandings. We're living in a time of renewal and people have to be given some latitude to work things out, and if you can't do that, you won't be part of the renewal. You'll put yourself on the edge of the renewal, outside the renewal, as a critic of what God is doing. Now I know some of you will think, oh, you're just a relativist, you just can't accept this or that. That's, I'm not a relativist. And I understand the authority of God, and I can tell you what the greatest commandment is, because there is a greatest commandment. So if you're thinking, oh, Rabbi David, he doesn't even think there are commandments, I would just say, slice more of your bologna and eat it, because that's not true. <laughs> but you've got to get the commandments right. The greatest commandment is, Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad Ve'ahavta et Adonai Lehecha B'chol Levavcha U'v'chol Nafshecha U'v'chol Me'odecha. That's how Yeshua said it. He didn't say it in King James English. He makes that clear. That's number one, and number two goes along with it, ve'ahavta l'recha kamocha. That's part of our Hebrew prayers, our liturgical service. Every 
every time we gather to remind ourselves of number one and number two that form a unity together from which correct interpretation of Torah and the prophets can be developed. Without which, error will automatically come. Now, all of this is not easy. That's for sure. All of this is quite complicated. And it takes effort, it takes time, and it could take more generations beyond ours to work through a peaceable understanding and a mature understanding. Right now we're in an early period of renewal and that puts us in the infancy stage. If we don't like that, we can say the adolescent stage. So look around at all of us who are teenagers in the spirit, no more than that, maybe less. And that's the humble attitude that we need to have about ourselves and one another so that we can accept each other with diversity and not fall into the traps that we are warned about. You know, one of the prophets said, what does the Lord require of thee? And he gave three details. It was a summary. He wasn't trying to renege on, repudiate everything else. He was trying to distill something and crystallize it for a moment when people needed to see something clearly. And there are times like that. But let's understand this. The word of God is active. You know what that means? It's doing stuff. It's alive. You know what that means? It's not meant to be fossilized or ossified or led, left as a dead structure. It's meant to bring life because it is alive and it judges between soul and spirit. It will help you learn to distinguish between those things that are appealing to your soul and those things that are appealing to your spirit. And sometimes the soul gets the first answer. I like this. But the spirit has to speak up and say, wait a minute, I also need this other thing. Well, I think we should stop here. It's a good stopping point. I wanna keep challenging you. Keep challenging you. Press into the word of God. Press into God. And work on these things. Work out your salvation with what? Fear and trembling. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that your word is eternal. Your word is settled. You are perfect. We are not. And we know this, we need the Holy Spirit, we need guidance, we need instruction in order to learn how to live, and we need help even to take yet one more step further with you, to walk with you and to go forward with you. And so I pray in the name of Yeshua for the outpouring of your grace that we would not be judging each other or contemptuous of each other, but we would understand with humility each one of us will stand before you to give an account for ourselves. Thank you for the mercy of Yeshua, in whose name we pray, amen. Let's close with Aaron's blessing. Would you please rise? And good news, we have an Oneg to follow. You're invited to our Oneg, and at 1.30 we have the welcome class. Yivarechecha Adonai v'yishmarecha. Ya'er Adonai p'navelecha v'yichunecha yisa Adonai p'navelecha v'yasem lecha shalom. The Lord bless you and the Lord protect you. The Lord cause the light of his face to shine upon you. The Lord be gracious to you.
as you're gracious to others too. The Lord lift up his face to you and give you peace, his peace, in the name of the Prince of Peace, Yeshua our Messiah. Amen. Amen. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom.